habits that that are good that we want to get into. One habit I hope that you are willing to be part of is to take some time daily in God's Word. Um, we deliberated several topics, uh, possible topics for this semester for base camp, and we clearly settled on getting into two books of the Bible that were one time considered one book, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're, the instructors are using this um, as one resource as they go through the lessons for you um, from Max Lucado, but I'm going to read out of that real briefly. Um, but we kept, we kept coming back to study another book of Scripture instead of a topical study because we want to make sure that we get well-grounded in the Word. Remember, base camp is not just a Bible study. It's about fellowship. It's about the table time. So we're trying to make sure that you have the opportunity um, to interact with each other. And we, do, we build these relationships just, it may be as, as small as the time that you get here today, or it may, you may be able to expand that as we ask you to do outside fellowship and serving events. But really, it's those discussion questions, and we just want to give you time to work on that. So let's get moving. Why do we read the Bible? And this one, we're going to read an excerpt from Max Lucado's um, introduction as one of the resources that we're using for the instruct- instructors. The Bible is a very particular book, and I will paraphrase this a little bit from what he says. Words craft language, deeds done in another area, events recorded in a far-off land, counsel offered to foreign people. It's surprising that anyone at all reads it. It's too old. Some of its writings are 5,000 years. It's too bizarre. It speaks of incredible floods and fires and earthquakes. It's too radical. It calls for an undying devotion to a carpenter who called himself God's son. It says the book shouldn't survive. It's been banned, burned, scoffed, ridiculed. Scholars have mocked it as foolish. Kings have branded it as illegal. A thousand times over, the grave has been dug and the dirge begun, but somehow the Bible never stays in the grave. Not only has it survived, but it's also thrived. It's the single most popular book in all of history. There's no way on earth to it, which is perhaps the simple explanation. For the Bible's durability is not found on earth or in heaven. The millions who have tested its claimed and claimed its promises know there is one answer. The Bible is God's book and God's voice. As you would read it, you would be wise to give some thoughts to two questions. What is the purpose and how do I study the Bible? Time spent reflecting on these two issues will greatly enhance your Bible study. So what is the purpose of the Bible? Let the Bible answer that question. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From 2 Timothy 2, 3.15. So there's the answer. It's for salvation. God's highest passion is to get his children home. His book, the Bible, describes the plan of salvation. The purpose of the Bible is to proclaim God's plan and passion to save his children. This is the reason the book has endured through the centuries. But how do you study the Bible? Because it is a particular book. Countless copies of the scriptures remain unread. What can you do to make the Bible real in your life? The clearest answer is found in the words of Jesus, asking it will be given to you, seeking you will find, knocking the door will be opened. The first step into understanding the Bible will help you. You should read it prayerfully and purposefully. If anyone understands God's word, it's because God, because of the reader. Before you read the Bible, 
pray and invite God to speak to you. Don't go to Scripture looking for your idea, but rather searching for his. Not only should you read the Bible prayerfully, but also carefully. Seek and you will find is the pledge. The Bible is not a newspaper to be skimmed, rather a mind to be quartered. If you look for it as silver and search for it as if for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. From Proverbs. Any worthy find requires effort. The Bible is no exception. To understand the Bible, you don't have to be brilliant, but you must be willing to roll up your sleeves and search. Second Timothy also says, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of God. I'm sorry, the word of truth. There's a third step to understanding the Bible. After asking, after seeking, comes the knocking. After you search, knock, and the door will be open to you. Knock is to stand at God's door to make yourself available. Climb up those steps. Cross that porch. Stand at the doorway and volunteer. Knocking goes beyond the realm of thinking and into the realm of action. To knock is to ask, what can I do? How can I obey? Where can I go? It's one thing to know what to do. It's another to do it. But for those who choose to obey, a special reward awaits. James records, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed by what they do. Ask, search, knock. Simple, isn't it? So why don't you give it a try? So why study Ezra and Nehemiah? First off, part of God's word. The books which derived out of a single Hebrew text are contained in the history genre, they are sometimes difficult for us to grapple with because they are real life. They don't turn out on the surface how we think biblical stories ought to turn out, and I think you'll discover that as we go through the lessons. Keep in mind, this is just one thread in God's overarching message, and if you just read Ezra and Nehemiah, you might be slightly confused as What was the point of all this? There's many lessons that can be taken away from these two books. They're about their leadership lessons embedded in there. There's lessons on overcoming disappointment and discouragement. But it's a lot more than that. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah are about leaders who not bring about the realization of their own hopes and dreams. It's a story about how the leaders made their way back to Jerusalem on the three different events, but it includes lessons on disappointment that can only be reconciled if you continue reading the story into the New Testament with the life of Christ. So let's structure of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the title on your little worksheet there was just to leave you in suspense. All right, here's a framework. I love frameworks. Here is one. You can tell because it says framework. The story tells three parallel stories and offers both positive and negative conclusions to those stories. One to six, Zerubbabel and Joshua lead the first wave of exiles that were, well, they were in the Babylonian captivity back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they end up with rather mixed results. And then in Ezra 7 to 10, we have uh, who seeks to initiate a spiritual revival 
among the exiles that have returned to Jerusalem. And again, we will discover very mixed results in the revival. And finally, Nehemiah 1-7. to Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of the, the, um, the walls. And once again, the mixed results in, in, in that, um, those passages. And the book ends, the book of Nehemiah ends with the staging of a re- revival, which basically um, ends with Nehemiah getting very, very um, angry and disappointed in, in the people. That is the cliffhanger. And um, get you ready. Now I'm going to spin. Oh, Tom's getting away. I've got a video I want you to watch. This is just a basic introduction. Do we have sound? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work, single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel. Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with Adiris, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised to Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. The grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would come together, along with all of the nations, to participate. 
participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were not, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives, the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the root of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, and people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while he carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage, they have to build the city with armed guards to protect them, we keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the eggs together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the wall, Jerusalem. And we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers this work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, 
obey the commands of the Torah. And his words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues. of. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what God's going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thanks. Dave's back there panicking and turning the volume up. Uh, so anyways, that's just a stage sitter to get us going. But to recap, um, the exile did not transform the human heart. And it's looking forward to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And that is really the bottom line there. But as we go through this over the, the next eight weeks, nine weeks, um, there's a lot of lessons gleaned from this. And so at the end of each one, we're going to hit the discussion questions and, and the most likely be, so what are you going to do in light of this? But for today, since this is an introduction, the discussion questions I want you to hit at your tables, what sort of goals do you have for this semester? I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions. I'm talking about what goals do you really want for this semester of base camp for yourself? And since a large part of our mission is to get you guys connected, what goals do you have for your table? So just talk about that. And uh, as a table, what do you want to accomplish? And once you have talked a little bit about that and welcome each other back and catch up on um, kids and activities and whatnot, uh, what's the first step that you're willing to commit to? Don't leave today without you one step. And with that, let me say a prayer for you, Lord. Um, I just uh, lift up all these guys and the table groups in prayer and just ask for um your encouragement, I ask for your direction, I ask for you to um, enlighten them in their conversations, um, give them um, ears to hear, give them hearts um, as we go into this new semester. In Jesus' name, amen.